0: Good morning. Uh, It's nice to see you all. Thank you for coming out early on a Friday morning. I know that means that there must be some enthusiasm for this subject, and there should be. Uh, I am Pat Michaels. I run the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute. Um, I'm an atmospheric scientist by training on the faculty of UVA for 30 years. And in that, I learned that there are some systematic problems in the way that we incentivize and do science. and so. I've decided to spend the rest of my uh, career not only doing climate science, but also uh, a study of how science got to where it got. <clears throat> and uh, as a paid commercial announcement, our next Hill briefing will be with Terence Keeley on December 5th. He, he just stepped down as the president of the University of Buckingham. He's is the author of probably the most famous book on the way science works economically, called. The Economic Laws of Scientific Research. Commercials are over. You're about to hear from Alex Epstein. He, is, <clears throat> he has written the clearest, crispest book on the subject of energy, climate, and policy that I have ever read. Now, I'm old enough to tell you that I've read a lot. Where do you get a book that looks, feels, and God has to be a nerd book, and you pick it up, and you can't put it down. When's the last time that happened? Well, (coughs) that's the way Alex's book works. So I'm very pleased that he's with us. Alex um, graduated from the James B. Duke University in 2002 with a degree in philosophy, (coughs) and then he wound up at the Ayn Rand Institute for several years. Uh, Alex is one of these people that I'm not so sure likes to work for other people, Uh, And so he started the Center for Industrial Progress in 2011. Is that correct? And that's what he runs now. So he's the guy what runs it. And he has an incredible and uncanny talent for writing. But he's also pretty funny. And so he's asked uh, me to start his presentation off with his people's trip through the People's Climate March. In, in New York City on uh, September 21st, right? Yes, the, the day of the fall equinox.
1: Uh, hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein. We are in New York City, one of the greatest industrial achievements in the history of industrial civilization. Uh, unfortunately, people who think industrial civilization is immoral are taking advantage of the attention that a great city like New York has and using it to destroy the lifeblood of New York City, which is fossil fuel energy. So we are here to discuss that with them and hopefully get some of them to turn around and maybe carry an I Love Fossil Fuels song. Well, actually, you know, fossil fuels make us a lot safer from the climate. Wow. Well, so in the last, last 80 years, we have 50 times fewer climate-related deaths since people can actually deal with heat and cold and all sorts of other climate-related problems. Storms, okay,
0: climate-related as in heat and cold, problems like
1: that. Storms, oh, everything from floods. We're safer from all of those things because we have modern civilization and half the world doesn't have that. These fuels are far cheaper, more plentiful, more reliable than anything else. They're essential to billions of people's lives. And you're saying on the basis of a failed experiment of the last 100 years, you want to risk all of that. For- OK, that's fine. I, I'm happy to have you have it, but I want to be free. And by the way, it's less than 7% of Germany is solar and wind combined. We're still looking for the scientists. This is, we, got, we thought we had a lead, but right now it's like Bigfoot. But I mean, so there are about 3 billion people in the world with almost no electricity. In the last couple decades, by using coal and oil and gas, people have gotten a lot more electricity. So I would like to see that continue but this rally is saying that that should be reversed. Well, they want to ban 80% of coal use. Nobody seems to be teaching, so we're going to see if we can learn something even over all of the cacophony.
0: Well, as you can see, Alex is extremely tactful, and so he is going to spend the next 30 minutes or so uh, being very tactful, I'm sure. All right, thanks, Pat.
1: All right, so recently had the elections, uh, which were very interesting, I think, with this issue of the the morality uh, of fossil fuels, because what you had was, I mean, let's take six years ago. Six years ago is maybe the peak in popularity of peak oil, quote unquote, theory. So the idea that we're going to run out and it's going to be a crash. Uh, it was a time when an inconvenient truth was unbelievably popular and viewed as gospel uh, on, on climate science, which is, of course, a, a problem if something is actually viewed as gospel on, on climate science. Um, and President Obama, when he was running president in 2007, candidate Obama at the time, uh, spoke in Detroit about the tyranny of oil and compared the tyranny of oil to the tyranny of fascism and communism, which means that he's comparing the people who produce oil to Nazis and communists who, uh, directly or indirectly, killed over 100 million uh, people in the 20th century. And so fast forward to today, where you have something like... Basically, the candidates are, you know, I, I was wearing this I Love Fossil fuel shirt, which I, I tend to wear. I was told it was inappropriate for the Hill, but I, I see that I'm now overdressed. So thanks, Travis Fisher, for the, the bad sartorial advice. Uh, um, but, you know, one person came up to me and asked me, you know, how do you feel there's, you know, you're one and there's 100,000 of us? Now, first of all, those numbers are irrelevant. It doesn't mean one is right or one is wrong because the numbers. But I also thought my my view, was I told her, you know, I don't think that you represent most people, fortunately, because if you did, we'd be in in big trouble. I think that most people don't think it's worth it to come out here. I do, because I think it's important for someone to take the moral high ground uh, against you. But I think in general, the American people recognize that there's value here. Uh, that there's something important, even if, if they wouldn't say it uh, as, as openly or as, as consistently as I would. And so I was very happy in the elections to see both Republicans and Democrats really running on fossil fuels. And I, I wrote an article, uh, I forget if it was published under this name, but uh, it, I had titled it, America Loves Fossil Fuels. And you look at, say, the Kentucky race um, with Grimes and McConnell, and Grimes is running on the platform of, I'm more pro-coal, than Mitch McConnell, you know, who is one of the people who helped defeat cap and trade. So my view is that this is good. And you see with Landrew, the whole thing is she is try she and Democrats are trying to pretend, although this got upset, that they support something like the Keystone XL pipeline, which they had been righteously holding up for seven years, you know, to the point where couldn't even get, uh, you know, a permit. Interesting historical fact. The first ever major oil pipeline in the US called the Tidewater Pipeline, which is pretty near here, um, in 1874, from the time it, it was conceived in the, the proprietor Byron, Byron Benson's mind to the time that it was completed was six months. <laughs> Try starting a yoga studio in six months today. So you know, this is part of why I run the Center for Industrial Progress. We, we have a long way to go, or in a sense, we should go back to the kinds of property rights systems we used to have. Um, The real, but there's still, so the Republicans won, and in part they won on fossil fuels, but there's, you know, we see with the China agreement and other things, there's still this lingering question of what should the future be? Is it the right thing that they won? And particularly long range, is it the right thing? Are we sacrificing the long term for the short term? And this really raises the issue of morality. Because morality is, to say something is moral, is to say that it's consistent with our most important values. And, but an aspect of that is consistent with our most important values in the short term and in the long term. And the narrative about fossil fuels today is that it is that while it might be necessary or desirable in the short term, or at least convenient in the short term, in the long term, it's destroying us. And there are three big arguments. And I would lump them all under the concept that revealingly president george w bush popularized which is addiction because our addiction to oil our addiction to fossil fuels because an addiction is something that feels good in the short run but that destroys you in the long run so the three big arguments for addiction are catastrophic resource depletion so when we you know when we're using fossil fuels there's only so many of them and we're going to run out and then it's going to be a disaster so we should not depend on them we should use renewables instead and and more broadly a more and more popular argument is not only are we depleting fossil fuels but we're depleting all the resources on earth including what they'll call like ecosystem resources uh, another one is catastrophic pollution so as we use more fossil fuels they're allegedly dirty you know they're dirty energy things are going to get worse and worse and worse um, and china today is pointed out as this is the leading example you see smog you hear stories of people breathing in smog and it's just well if they keep using coal it's inevitably going to get worse and worse and worse. Then, of course, the biggest is uh, catastrophic climate change, because we put CO2 in—you know—putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas, or I think more technically an infrared absorber—that has a heating—that has a warming effect, at least of some magnitude. And the idea is that, that it turns out to be of such magnitude that we'll have runaway global warming and and climate uh, catastrophe. So this leads, I think, to a general view, even among, uh, at least a reticence among even many conservatives, the idea that fossil fuels are immoral, uh, that are, excuse me, that they're moral. Like most people won't wear an I love fossil fuel shirt, and I think most people would have difficulty justifying it. Um, so the and and what you have, I think, are there there are two common positions on on the morality of fossil fuels that I'm really fighting against in my work and with this book, and so this is um, I just printed out this handout because some of these concepts are abstract, so just we can get some structure to them. Um, there's one over there, if, um, uh, just so that, But um, in terms, so the 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 three views of there there are two prevailing views, and then I'm trying to offer a new one. So the first one is the idea that Fossil fuels are an unnecessary addiction or an unnecessary evil. So they're unnecessary in the sense of we're addicted to them. They're destroying us in the long run. But fortunately, we have technologies today that can replace them, and we can do it rapidly. So the, the, the phraseology you'll often hear in this, in this respect is we have the technology. We just don't have the will. Are people familiar with this? Kind of uh, refrain. We have the technology. we have stowing up the will. People like you know the activists. So Bill McKibben, Greenpeace, Sierra Club. This is the unnecessary addiction, unnecessary evil is generally their uh, their line. Mark Mark Jacobson of Stanford is is like considered a more technical uh, exponent of this kind of thing. But then the response I think is even more interesting because the response is often okay, yes, we agree that long-term this is, this is bad, that it's not moral, that it's either catastrophic or something close enough to catastrophic that we should really aspire to stop it, but it's gonna take a while. So this is really the necessary evil or the necessary addiction point. Um, and you can see this a lot, I think you see it among you know even many conservative groups, but certainly in the industry. And a company I've been uh, targeting lately Uh, is, in this respect, is Shell, because I think they've, they've been, you know, the classic example of necessary evil um, is beyond, is BP, when they change their, you know, their advertising name to Beyond Petroleum, right? That's, that's the idea of, yes, we're producing petroleum now, yes, we're even asking for permission to produce more petroleum, but our goal is to go beyond ourselves. Our goal is to expire. We just disagree with the environmentalists about the expiration date, right? And Shell, is, Shell, on its website, says, it says often very little about oil, but it talks about our goal is for a zero emissions world. This is an oil company that's trying to drill in the Arctic. So there's a bit of a conflict. And if anyone wants to ask a question about necessary evil, I think necessary evil is an incoherent concept. And certainly, if you have necessary evil against unnecessary evil, unnecessary evil always has the high ground. Because if there's an evil... And, and justifiably so, if there's an evil, we should try to be fighting it, and generally, the oil companies and you know anyone who agrees with this kind of positioning always has the moral low ground, and they're always viewed as cynical and they're always viewed as you know defending their interests against a threat that everyone regards as as uh long term so my view of this is that both of these both of these uh are completely wrong um, so And that's why I titled my book The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, because there's a moral case against fossil fuels. Um, And my view is, no, this is not an unnecessary addiction. It's not a necessary addiction. It is a healthy choice. Which is not to say that it has no imperfections or risks or side effects, and a lot of the book is about uh, how to quantify those, how to think about those, how to integrate them into a bigger picture. Um, But it is to say it is like you know, taking the prescription drug that saves your life. Yes, it may have risks and side effects. Yes, you take those into account. Yes, you want to minimize those or counteract them. But its overall benefit, short-term and long-term, is immensely good. And we should be on the premise of being excited about the prospect of using more and and doing it ever better. And, you know, as long as it's the best. So so it's either a healthy choice or a superior good. So it's just like, um, you know, my iPhone. I use it because I think it's the best tool uh, for the job, and I will continue using the best tool for the job. And if Apple keeps making iPhones, uh, and I keep thinking they're the best, I want that to happen indefinitely. If they stop, I'll use something else. So then there's a question. The question I, I often get then is, well, obviously I haven't justified that yet. So why do you believe that? Uh, and and it it. Often comes across as almost impossible that, that someone could believe this. And this is part of why I got motivated enough to write a book. That because I think I think if we actually think through everything logically, I think it's inexorable that fossil fuels are, are, are moral. And but I I tend to wear things like this I love fossil fuels shirt, I I love fossil fuels pins, to, to raise the discussion. And it's interesting how entrenched the immorality of fossil fuels is. So, um, I tell this story in the book, so I'll do the quick version of it, but I, I was um, visiting a farmer's market in uh, 2009, I remember this very vividly, and a girl from a Greenpeace booth says, hey, don't you want to help us get off clean, renewable ener- get us, get us off Excuse me, fossil fuels, our addiction to fossil fuels, and switch to clean renewable energy? And I said, well, actually, I write about this for a living, I think the fossil fuel industry, what they do is great, and I think we should admire them, and I think we should use more fossil fuels. So can anyone guess what her reaction was? Yeah, who has not read the book incidentally? Yes. She probably make a lot of money. Have you read the book? No. Really? That's good. I have never had anyone guess it properly. That's exact she said those exact words. So maybe being on the hill people have more experience with that. Yeah, I expected her Yeah. No. Um, My, my, yeah, I was expecting, I wanted her to raise, you know, catastrophic depletion, catastrophic pollution, catastrophic climate change, because I thought I would have a new way of thinking about it, but, or I, you know, expected her to yell and this kind of thing, but no, she just said exactly what you said. She said, wow, you must make a lot of money. And, and, you know, the other day I was on Bloomberg, and the host, who's, you know, very nice and, and very friendly, she sees my pin, she says, well, what, what kind of pin is that, because I was far across the table. I said, oh, it says, I love fossil fuels. And without pause, she says to me, do you love fossil fuels, or do you just love taking a lot of money from oil companies? And I said, oh, I just love fossil fuels. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this, this like, I definitely was not making a a lot of money at the time. I don't think I'd ever met anyone from the fossil fuel industry, because I first started studying it in a very academic way. and I told the woman, and she agreed with me. Like, how many oil companies are saying, "I love fossil fuels" and dispatching like lobbyists to say this kind of thing? No, but the problem. I wish I wish they were paying people uh, to say this. Um, so it's so entrenched. There's, so, but so the question is, like, how do you get to it if it's not you're dis dishonest? Somebody paid you. I think these are sort of very poor explanations to give in general. I think you should look at ideas and not kind of write things off because of motives. But yeah, I wasn't making a lot of money. I didn't know anyone in the industry. I came to it really through philosophy. And this is kind of the thing that people find odd. Why is somebody who studied philosophy his whole life who thinks about philosophy? Why did you make fossil fuels a cause? And certainly nobody was more surprised by this than I. Because uh, I grew up here. I grew up in, not on the hill, but I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland which, is anyone aware, this is not a hotbed of fossil fuel <laughs> advocacy? Um, you know, my parents had, you know, my dad works at the Pentagon, my mom's an attorney. Um, I, I learned nothing uh, about fossil fuels growing up, except in all of the very high-caliber schools I went to, allegedly. I went to one of the probably top ten universities, Duke, and I went to one of the top ten math science schools, uh, in, there, in, in maybe in the country, Montgomery Blair Magnet. And all I learned about fossil fuels was all those three catastrophic things, catastrophic resource depletion, catastrophic pollution, uh, catastrophic uh, climate change. Um, But I think the fact, so I think the fact that I only learned about one side of it was very influential on me because then I became obsessed. At first, in life, I was very interested in math and science and computer science, that was my obsession. But I became really interested in applying logical thinking, not just in those fields, but I was much more interested in the human fields after, you know, 15, 16. And when I started studying energy, which I sort of happened upon randomly, I got very upset that I had not heard all sides of the story about fossil fuels, and that got me interested. So. One particular formative incident that I had was studying the early history of the oil industry. Um, so most of you have probably heard the narrative of the early history of the oil industry, where we have you know, whale oil. Everyone uses whale oil, and then we start running out of whales. And then fortunately, someone finds some of that black glop, and then they can turn into kerosene, and then the day is saved. People familiar with this? So this is not a, a true story. Um, And there's truth in it. It's true that there was, you know, difficulties whaling, and we can talk about because they didn't have a proper system of ocean property rights, this would be another good Cato uh, discussion to have. But in any case, what I realized, what I learned by studying the history and the primary sources, was that there was a whole dynamic alternative energy market at the time. There were at least six major competitors for who can light up people's homes for illumination energy. So there was Freud, and, and they all had their kind of strengths and weaknesses. So there were animal-based things like lard oil, and then it turned out there was high-tech lard oil, which is a funny thing to think about, which was called stearin. Um, but that that was able to, you know, ma- you imagine lard oil in your house, it might smell, you know. So they were pretty good at taking that away and improving it, but it's more expensive because it's new technology. Then you had not you had whale oil, but really the highest caliber thing was sperm whale oil. Then you had something called camphene, which was a turpentine derivative, which was the cheapest for a while, but tended to explode, which is not ideal in your home. Uh, And then there was actually coal oil, which I had never heard about before I started studying, which was, in fact, the best, the most promising. So to give you a sense, what was fascinating studying this is how many competitors there were. So it wasn't just, oh, we only had one option. We happened to select it. It beat out all these these competitors. but also looking at the prices that people were paying for illumination back then. Because in the 1860s, 1859, when you have the first oil commercial oil well in America, the price the price of oil, the, the, the price of, of illumination for sperm oil is three dollars a gallon. So think about this in 1859 dollars. We've had a lot of inflation then in case people haven't studied the value of the dollar. Three dollars So this is and the cheapest is about $1.30. So what does this really show? Well, this shows that, wow, these guys were all trying to do it. There are all sorts of technologies that, quote, worked. You know, we had the technology, but what we didn't have was something that was cheap and scalable. And that, that really was a lesson. And what, when oil came around, the key was not that it was the only thing that could light a home or that you didn't have anything else, but it was the first truly cheap and scalable solution. So you go from maybe $1.30 for coal oil almost immediately to $0.56 cents for, for uh, rock oil or petroleum, which is almost you know half price. And, this is when, and by five years in, I remember reading a quote from a chemist in New York who observed that the countryside had gone, in five years, had gone from dark to light. And have you ever seen those overhead images of North Korea versus South Korea? That's always the image that I have in my mind of this is what the oil industry did. So I was very impressed by the oil industry back then, but also just looking forward, I realized it's, it's a lot the same issue now. It's very hard to produce affordable, reliable energy at scale, on a large scale so that many people can get it. So this idea that, oh, we can use any kind of energy, if we don't think about affordability and reliability and scalability, we're missing the point. Because if you can't afford energy, you don't have energy. And looking into the present, I saw, you know what? The fossil fuel industry, um, so, and, and the, the dynamics about this, by the way, are, are interesting. What exactly makes something affordable and reliable? And in chapter two of the book, I, I go into some depth in why some industries are effective and why aren't. But the fact is, some are very effective at creating a process that can produce cheap, plentiful, reliable energy you know, on a very large scale. And looking forward, it's the fossil fuel industry is still the only one that can do this. And it's getting better and better. And so this gets back to philosophy. Everything I learned as a kid was just negative, negative, negative. Um, but I didn't learn how important energy was. And I didn't learn how this one industry was the only one that could provide it on a scale of the world. And so this is just a huge, and so this gets to the, the third point, this is a huge logical failing. because. One key principle of logical thinking about anything, and particularly any moral issue, is that you have to look at both benefits and risks, and you have to look at them with precision. Because if you don't, if you just take a negative out of context, it's like saying, hey, here's, a, here's, a, here's an antibiotic, and you shouldn't take the antibiotic because it has a side effect. 97% of scientists agree that this antibiotic has a side effect. Okay what other information would you need to know to decide whether you wanted to use the antibiotic? What's the benefit? Yeah, is it going to save your life? So let's say there are 3 billion people in the world who can pretty much only get the benefit from this. That's a pretty big thing, particularly, uh, it turns out energy is even more valuable than we think. It does pretty much anything from, it's not just you know powering light bulbs, but it does things like clean up our water. And as I mentioned in the video, it keeps us safe, from climate. Climate is naturally incredibly dangerous. It's naturally variable. It changes constantly and within itself it's volatile. It makes dramatic changes and it's vicious. It attacks us and it certainly doesn't give us, you know, always the temperature and the water we need. That's why historically people were totally at the mercy of nature. People prayed for rain because they had no, because the climate wouldn't give it to them naturally even before we started using SUVs. Um, So this is just crazy that we're having this discussion where all, risks are everything, and benefits are all trivialized. It's just oh somebody somebody got solar to work in a lab, therefore let's cap let's aspire to cap eighty percent of fossil fuels. This is not serious moral uh, thinking and so that then that then indicates that. There's something really off. I think that that is, it's too the bias and the prejudice of the thinking is too large, to to just be an accident. And the book I talk a little bit about, uh, talk actually a lot about wh- wh- why we have this bias, and I'll indicate it here. But it's a really interesting question of why is it so skewed? Why why do the negatives always hold the fort? But whenever you see, and so if you ever see someone not thinking big picture, if you ever see them not keeping in mind the full context, if they're only looking at at risks and they're not looking at benefits, what might you assume they're doing with the risks? Mm -hmm. Inflating them, why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's something that's driving a negative view. So you would expect it wouldn't just ignore benefits, it would inflate risks. And this is what you see with climate. And that there's very sloppy thinking. So this kind of expression, 97% of scientists believe in climate change. or Do you believe in climate change? This is called the fallacy of equivocation. So the fallacy of equivocation is using the same word in two very different ways to confuse or manipulate people. So if climate change can simultaneously be used to mean a mild warming impact and a catastrophic warming impact, then the term is meaningless. And, and any sort of serious intellectual who switches, who equivocates like that, is being dishonest and manipulative, and it's usually not accidental. He wants to get away with something. And with the 97 percent, what they want to get away with is, you know, allegedly 97 percent um, agree that man is responsible for most of the point, you know, more than 50 percent of the 0.8 degrees warming, you know, which we can't even really detect physically ourselves, you know, on our bodies, since in the last 150 years. That is equated with the, all those scientists agree with Obama's policies and want to stop us to stop using fossil fuels. That is a massive dishonest equivocation. And then it turns out, I go into this in chapter four of the book, that 97% thing is just a complete crock, too, in terms of the, the methodology of those studies. Um, but even if it were completely true, it would be so dishonest for John Kerry. If you read his speech, it's an exercise and I quote some of it, but if you read his speech to the Indonesians where he's telling them, hey, you guys should be using less fossil fuels. This is you know, a very poor country already that started to improve its life using fossil fuels. And he tells them, you know, this is leaping at us like a 3D movie. 97% of the scientists, whenever 97% of scientists say anything, we need to act, but he doesn't say what they say. Or rather, he switches it up and he starts out with uh, climate change is occurring, Okay, well, nobody would disagree with that. Climate change is occurring, and man is, you know, responsible for most of it. But in the end of the same paragraph, he goes to, and they all agree that it's dangerous and we need to take drastic action. Like, that is a huge difference, because if you believe, like I do, that energy is fundamental to life and that cheap, plentiful, reliable energy is necessary for everything, including having a clean environment, including having being safe from climate, things that our ancestors really didn't have. They didn't have clean water, and they, had a, they were terrified of climate. If you believe that, then you have to look at the big picture, and you have to do it very carefully without equivocation. So my main mission in this book, in a sense, is, is not even the conclusion of the book, which is that you know, short term and long term, I think fossil fuel use is incredibly good. The more important point of the book is the method of the book. That we need to have different table stakes. We need to have gr- different ground rules in discussing this seriously. And it can't just be, you know, being sort of, oh, I want my party to win, so I'm going to use these talking points or 97%, hey, let's use that one. No, you have to be a responsible human being because you're talking about the fate of our nation and the fate of billions. So I want to just indicate two other quick method issues that I think are key for the discussion. And then I want to. Uh, take a bunch of questions and we can talk about a lot of the specifics of fossil fuels and both benefits and risks. So just, just to indicate, another key issue, and this, this is related to the 97%, is the issue of experts. And I think this has been mangled by both sides of the issue, particularly mangled by um, the catastrophists, um, as I would call them. But the this idea, on one side you have, when 97% of scientists say something, you act that that kind of thing. This this authoritarianism. So, the goal of science science is not a method; it's an institution, and that institution exists to tell you what to do, to prescribe action. That's that's one view. The other view is that sort of we should just be independent, and if 97% of scientists agree, we shouldn't pay too much attention to that, and let's just pick our own thing. So, if some if if we read a A scientist who says that oh it's actually global cooling and that seems more congenial to our views or it's all the Sun then we'll just take that and no you have to be very critical and experts aren't you cannot a society a modern society cannot function without experts and it can't even really function without consensus consensus is a is a vital tool I wrote a Forbes article called the unscientific consensus about the use the proper use and misuse of consensus but a consensus is properly when a field shares with you what it knows, what, 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 it's, it's what most people in that field believe, with what degree of confidence, and with what reasoning. But all of those three are crucial. They have to explain exactly what's believed, with what degree of confidence, and with what uh, reasoning. And you, you need that, so they need to do that, and then we as consumers need to take that, that seriously. Um, and so and it's not that we bow to the consensus. The consensus can be wrong. And, per, and the more immature the science, the, the um the the more likely it is to be wrong. So for example, you know, one question you ask of a consensus field is what is your track record? Like if you're if you're trying to do climate predictions, do you have a good track record of climate predictions? And one of the huge failings of climate scientists, particularly the modelers, is that they have predictions which have been very very wrong and which is itself, you know, it, that cast doubt on their theories, but more importantly, they've been very dishonest about the failure of those. And so in the book, I, I chronicle James Hansen, who's at least the most media prominent climate scientist in the world, and being radically wrong, uh, and, not, and also people like John Holdren, and not taking account. So this is, the problem is not that we should, the problem is not the use of experts, it's that the experts are, are guilty of moral misconduct. So they are malfunctioning. Their function is to give us the best possible information, just like an auto mechanic owes you the best possible information because you don't know his specific field, and they are not uh, doing that. because what we need is we need each each field relevant to deciding about fossil fuels, which includes climate scientists, climate science. it includes you know ecology, it includes uh, you know sciences of human health and pollution, it includes economics, it includes it includes all of these things. We need those experts to give us very specific accounts of what they know um, and with what certainty and for what reasons, so that we can integrate it all. And one of my goals in this book was to do my best to get all of that, but it's really hard because a lot of people are not honest about those kinds of issues, on, on all of these issues. So I think that's a really important idea, and so I'd put the positive as we need experts as advisors, not authorities. And whenever someone tries to say, I'm an expert, therefore act this way, that is corrupt, and they're almost certainly wrong as well. So the final final issue, which I think is the most important issue in this whole debate, and and really, uh, yeah, I I can't stress it enough, is is a failure in our debate to identify a standard of, of value, a standard of value or a goal. So anytime we're having a discussion about any issue, there's always the implicit question which needs to be made explicit of what are we after? if I say climate change is a problem, or even climate impact is a problem, what does that mean? A problem for whom? And we kind of think, oh, well, we all know what we're talking about, right? And we do not know what we're talking about, often when we talk about this. And I'll give the example of climate is, is a great example here. When we talk about, when someone says, you know, climate change is bad, I always ask, you know, man-made climate change. I always ask, okay, let's be clear. Are you saying it's inherently bad if we impact climate or that there's evidence that we have a particularly negative impact, that it's going to harm human life? And to put this more more philosophically, is our standard of value when discussing these things, are we saying our standard of value is minimizing human impact and that's why climate climate change is bad because we just shouldn't be changing things? Or is is it because our standard of value is maximizing human well-being? And what I've found, and I I knew a lot about environmental philosophy before I knew anything about energy. I knew already that many of the leading thinkers, pretty much all of them in this field talking about catastrophe, they say explicitly their standard of value is not maximizing human well-being. It's minimizing human impact. So, for example, Bill McKibben, in his uh, book, The End of Nature, which is an interesting title. The End of Nature, he doesn't consider human beings natural. The idea is a human impact on, the na- on nature that's unnatural and everything else is, is great. Um, and he uses a specific example of now that he, quote, knows that we're having this impact on climate, and he knows that the rainfall pattern has now changed to the point where his river is in some way atomically different because we've had some warming impact that is intrinsically bad. And he describes it as, it was a steer, not a deer. Does that make sense? It, it bore a brand. So the idea is that man changing things, man impacting things is corrupt. And we're taught this all the time, you know, the whole idea of being green. We talk about being green, we're not really too focused on human well-being. It's just, it's intrinsically good to minimize our impact. And what I've found is that this issue is, is everything. The reason why people are ultimately so averse to climate change, to pollution, to using resources, is not because it can be proven that they're net harmful to human life. I think it can be proven that fossil fuels are net enormously helpful, but because we have this view that human impact is somehow wrong. And if human impact is somehow wrong, then human beings are somehow wrong, because human beings survive by impacting our environment to meet our needs. And every impact we have, just like, will have an intended effect. It'll have its its intended effect. And it'll have side effects, and it'll have risks, and that's every activity from building a solar panel, you know, to engineering a prescription drug, and we have to decide ultimately as a species: Are we? Do we value ourselves? You know, do we have self-esteem as a species? Do we think that our nature is good? That we should be transforming the world to meet our needs, and that we accept that that has side effects? That we try to make the best of, or sometimes they might even be good, like maybe more CO2 helps with plant growth. You know, more plant growth. Um, I think that's really the fundamental divide. So my my basic contention in this whole debate is that this is not a debate over conflicting sets of facts. It's a debate over conflicting sets of philosophies. And my philosophy is humanism. Human life is what matters, and methodologically, we have to look at the big picture with precision, and we have to use experts as advisors, not authorities. So with that in mind, I'd love to take questions, and and thanks so much for having me.